Um, I'll be reading from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be ju justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, there will be a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the works of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are continuing our series through the book of Romans. I'm thankful for, uh, as we sang this morning, man, I, my unbelief is helped by us singing together. And adding an electric guitar helps my unbelief too. It's needed this morning if you have read and studied this passage this week or have just heard it for the first time just now. It's a challenging one, so as we turn to it, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Father, we do pray that you would help our unbelief. You would use your word to equip your saints for the work of ministry. And that as your word goes out, that you would call in those who may not know you. Draw them to yourself. May we see in your passage this morning the greatness and the glory of your son Jesus. And it's his name that we pray. Amen. There's a show that my wife and I used to watch quite a bit. It's called Survivor. They've had several seasons, been running for 20 plus years on TV. And in Survivor, this game, you, you join up somewhere where you're kind of stranded and you have to survive. That's a big part of the game. You don't have a lot of food and stuff provided for you. But in the game, you try to basically make it through each round of votes. Your tribe is going to vote someone off each week. They're, or each day, a couple days, they're going to vote somebody out of the tribe. And your, your goal is basically to remain to the end, not be voted out. And you do this with social, you know, kind of helping your you know, friends out, being nice and whatever. You, you try to get in their good graces. You win challenges. That's another way. But there's another way that you can survive these votes. And that is if you have an immunity necklace. So that if you have this immunity necklace, that you can get to this place where they can vote for you and every vote that they cast for you to get you off their team, to get you out of this where you can't win the million dollar prize is not counted because you have immunity. Now, what's also has been interesting in this game is that as people have tried to work their tails off to get a million dollars and done whatever possible in the game to do it, they've gone through some pretty low deaths. One of those things that they've done to trick people is they've created fake immunity necklaces. So they will give these out to people in order to trick them to think that they have some sort of immunity and they can rest assured, as far as they know, during the vote when their name is being read that they are not being voted for in a way that can get them out of the game. But again, these, some of these have been made up and they're kind of infamous along the way how they've been tricked to thinking we're, we're good, but we're not really good. We can be voted out. 
Some here in the passage of Romans 2, as Paul shifts from Romans 1, these all men who practice this ungodliness and unrighteousness, have the thought that as this writing is going on by Paul, that they have an immunity necklace on. That, that they can hear all these things written, all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, and think that must be for them, it couldn't count for me. So Romans 2, Paul writes more directly to some who thought that they had some immunity from the judgment of God that is pronounced and revealed in chapter 1. And Paul writes to assure them in chapter 2 that if somehow you thought that you were escaping with some sort of immunity, no matter how you thought it out, how you reasoned it, or what level of comfort you had with that immunity, no matter how you thought that out, he writes chapter 2 to make sure that everyone knows that God's judgment for all, even those who think they have immunity, is inescapable, and that that judgment to them isn't because now they're a little bit better so it'll be lighter. It's not just inescapable, it's impartial. So no matter the feeling of immunity or the reason they think they have immunity, Paul is saying, you two are under the judgment of God, that his judgment and wrath that has been revealed from heaven in chapter 1 is also directed at you, so the gospel is necessary. So chapter 2 begins with this connecting therefore. And this therefore, uh, I think, goes back to chapter 1, verse 18. In chapter 1, verse 18, wrath was revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of all men. It should have left all, chapter 1, verse 18 and following, should have left all hearers of Paul's letter, all of them without excuse. Indeed, he even says that no matter if you've read Romans or not, you're all without excuse, that you know you have written, threaded into your consciousness as a human being, knowledge that there is a God, so all are without excuse before him. But Paul also knows that not all would have received that. Specifically because he writes to a mixed audience here with this letter. He writes to, to those who have a Jewish background and those who have a Gentile background. And, and with both those backgrounds, which includes all people and would be all are included in this audience, that some of them would have specifically thought, maybe I do have the immunity necklace on. That that is for that crowd, not for my crowd. Though, though clearly implicating and addressing all in chapter 1, 18 and following, Paul knows how different people would have heard it. Perhaps chapter 1 would have been heard a little bit more directly to the Gentiles, and you could see why. Some of the sins that, that Paul points out in chapter 1, verse 18 and following that we read about last week are, are a little bit more prevalent among Gentiles. And so Jews likely could have heard this as not just that that's more prevalent among Gentiles, but only Gentile sin, not Jewish sin. So the Jews could have been listening to all of chapter 1, and they could have been saying all along, Amen, Paul. Yes, ungodliness. I see it all the time over there in that Gentile culture. Their idolatry, they have, look at all the idols they have. We're walking around Rome and we're seeing all these things. Uh, even their, there's their practice of homosexuality. Hey, not acknowledging God. Well, we're the Jews. We acknowledge God. So great, Paul. Pour that wrath on them. Let them know that they're unrighteous before God. Maybe there were others who weren't just Jews, ethnically speaking, but others who felt superior to others in some way, who thought themselves more righteous. Perhaps they just had what we'd call a critical spirit, a little bit more judgmental towards others. And if they're in this crowd, they might have been adding their amen too. Maybe there's even some Christians among the crowd that are a little bit more moralistic that think that they can maybe do enough, perform enough to get God's favor. And they might have thought, I have the moral high ground in this church. And so I love that Paul is pouring out this ungodliness and unrighteousness. And he's explaining it so that I can add my amen to that too. And it's to that amen crowd that writes themselves out of chapter 1, to the, the crowd that, has, that thinks they have the immunity necklace on in chapter 1, that Paul links in chapter 2, verse 1, with this word, therefore. He brings them in. <laughs> therefore. So chapter 2 is a little bit more directed at the Jews that are in the crowd. Maybe some of those who would have thought themselves a little bit superior, that thought they had some immunity in some way, that thought that they could be written out of chapter 1, Paul directs chapter 2 at them. And he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Paul is going to use a rhetorical device called a diatribe, where he's going to have this rhetorical dialogue that uh, interacts with some possible 
objections to what he's saying that is kind of interacting with, uh, uh, he's going to say, oh man, uh, several times, and he's going to interact with them. This man could be any person, so it's, it's sufficient to fit everybody within it. But Paul is clearly directing this at a little bit more, again, the, the Jewish audience or those who thought they had the moral high ground. For sure, the man of chapter 2 that he's speaking to is one who judges. He's going to make that abundantly clear. And he says to the one who judges, the man who judges, you also have no excuse. You see, those who pass judgment on another, they put themselves into a category as those without excuse by the very act of judging. Those who are in the act of judging, they are testifying to their own without excuse status because they are saying as a judge that we also know what they know in chapter one, that we know that there is a God and that we are to be accountable to him. What can be known about God is also plain to them, so plain to them that they think that they can then turn around and be a judge as well. And in passing judgment, they don't write themselves out of the judgment list in chapter one. They actually, Paul says, write themselves right into it. That, that if you think that you can stand outside of the wrath that's revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness of chapter one, and you stand over them as judge over them, he says, actually what you've done is you've written yourself exactly into the wrath that is revealed against those in chapter one as well. Amen. So he says, those who are condemned in chapter one, if you stand in judgment over them, you also are included in that list. And it's not judging itself that Paul is condemning here. In a sense, Paul is doing that here, isn't he? He's saying, hey, if you, here's a list. And Paul is saying, you know, speaking as an apostle of Christ, like, that's a list that's under condemnation. He comes to chapter 2, and he says, here's some people. They're doing some things. That also is a list under condemnation. So he, in a sense, is judging. So he's not condemning judging in and of itself. He himself is judging in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But here's what he is condemning. Chapter 2, verse 1, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge... What do they do? Practice the very same things. So in passing judgment on another is to condemn yourself. Why? Because they practice the very same things. Paul doesn't call their judgment inaccurate. He doesn't say, hey, you know how you were judging chapter one and their sins? You were wrong. Those sins really aren't that bad. He doesn't say that. He doesn't justify their sin. He, he says, actually, you are practicing the very same things. And he doesn't say the sins of chapter one are off, are acceptable he says, you're practicing the same things. That's why you're condemned. Paul is calling out the hypocrisy of a man who would judge and then practice the same things of the things he's judging. Now, what things are being practiced then? Jews were explicitly commanded against idol worship. Jews were explicitly commanded against the practice of homosexuality. And so maybe those weren't as prevalent in Jewish culture. But the similarity of words of chapter 2, verse 1, who practice these very same things, and chapter 1, verse 32, where he says that those who practice such things makes me think that the link might be a little bit more clearly directed towards the end of chapter 1 that Paul is looping them into, right? And the end of chapter 1, here's the things that is referenced in chapter 1, verse 32, that I think maybe Paul is pointing to with chapter 2, verse 1. He says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, those kinds of things. That can describe any man. And somehow they might have thought themselves that they were written out of that, and Paul wants to make sure and loop them back in and say, you practice the very same things, those things I talked about just a few verses ago. The very same things. Jews weren't innocent of all idolatry. They weren't innocent of all sexual immorality. But those weren't as prevalent in their lives and culture as it were in Gentile life and culture. But they were definitely guilty of chapter 1, verse 29 and following. Envy, disobedient to parents, gossip, slanderers. Those were all through their history and it's not hard to find example. And in other words, Paul is saying there is not one person who can write themselves out of the list that I just gave in chapter 1, verse 29. Judge or not, you're not written out of that list. You're very much in it. And so he says, all of you then are without excuse. You're all guilty. He continues, verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you, whoever you are who judge, those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
So he's been speaking about judgment in people who judge, but here Paul speaks of a different judgment. Not the judgment of men, but he says you've placed yourself squarely in the judgment of who? Of God. And he says of this judgment that it is a right judgment. We know that it rightly falls. That is a good and right judgment. So notice the logic of chapters or verses 1 through 3. And I have it on a slide for you because I think it's helpful. That God's judgment falls on those who do these things. Even the self-righteous judge does these things. And so here's the logic. Therefore, even the self-righteous judge stands under God's judgment, not over it. Isn't that clear from what Paul said in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3? Perhaps some came along and they skewed the judgment of God that they heard of in chapter 1 and that they could claim judgment on another. Maybe those Gentiles over there, maybe those who practice homosexuality over there, maybe those who are idolaters over there, they could claim in some sort of skewed idea of judgment that it didn't include them. But here Paul says, actually before God, you can't make that claim. It cannot hold before God. He says that this judgment that we get from God is inescapable. And his inescapable judgment is right. It rightly falls. And that he now just included all people, including the judge, who thought themselves written out of chapter 1. And that this judgment from God that is rightly going to fall is inescapable should give every single reader of chapter 2 great pause. And I likely, I think that that's exactly what Paul intends. That the diatribe that he's giving in chapter 2 is meant to shake. It's meant to shake the hypocrites. The, the critical person, the one who's complacent, thinking that others need something that they don't. It's meant to shake the self-righteous. It's meant to lead, I think, to what he does in verse 3, the questioning that he gives. I think he means us to think about it, question it. Verse 3, like, do you suppose, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? That's a good question. Do I think I'm going to escape the judgment of God? Ask yourself. Think about that question. Are you harsh toward others and lenient and easy on yourself? Are you really critical of others, but not so self-reflective with a little bit of self-awareness? Is the cause for the unrighteous or the case for the unrighteousness of others way easier to make than the case for your own unrighteousness and deserving of God's judgment? Is others' unrighteousness way more evident than your own? Are you more known for being self-righteously judgmental or self-reflectively humble? And ask yourself, have you written yourself out of chapter 1's judgment? And now what do you say to what Paul says is now he's written you right back in? And if you don't have an answer to some of these questions, maybe ask another. I love one pastor, long gone, has said this. Oh, like this is his desire. We're Christians, hearts more taken up in judging themselves and condemning themselves. They would not be so apt to judge and censor others. And to carry it sourly and bitterly towards others who differ from them. Man. Thomas Brooks died in 1680. If he could see us now. How many doors of criticism do we have open to us that he wouldn't have even known about? And his desire at that time was, oh, that we Christians, we were more taken up in judging ourselves, condemning ourselves. Then we'd be a little bit less likely to go after other people in our self-righteousness. And now we have doors for that everywhere. You, you can have an immediate audience on the internet to criticize something that they haven't even heard of. And then everybody else can jump on that criticism and judgment as well. And give their hearty amen, even though they have no idea about the context whatsoever. The doors are everywhere. Judges are everywhere who think that it's their job to point out sin in others in the name of protection. In the name of purity for something. They think that I'm the judge in the name of Christ to call these things out. And what verses 1 through 3 says, you better put a pause on some of that first. Maybe you should halt it all together because what's true of the judge, what's true of all, is that God's judgment for them is also inescapable and right. I think verses 1 through 3 are meant to shake us, to give pause to whatever judgment that we are giving. Maybe even strike a little bit of terror in us that God's judgment is going to be revealed against the judge as well. It's meant to lead us to question ourselves, to do a little bit of judging on ourselves. 
That's self-reflection, thinking, what needs to be judged me? How do I fall into that list? And so Paul asked them that question so they would reflect in verse 3. Do I think that I'm outside of this judgment? He continues in a line of questioning in in verse 4. Another question that should cause pause. Verse 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Perhaps the argument was like this. Sure, all right, if you're going to make a hard case, I fall within the categories of chapter 1. Maybe not the first half, but the second part. I've disobeyed my parents, you know, back in the day, whatever. Maybe I could fall, fall in that category, but, I mean, I'm part of God's people. God is kind. We, we know this. I, I can quote Moses. He said that when God, the Lord, the Lord, he, he's slow to anger. He's gracious and merciful. He's abounding in steadfast love. So God is kind. So I'm all right. And that misses God's purpose in his kindness and in his love and in his patience and his his forbearance. He's literally, he says here, he's this one who puts up with people. And the purpose of him putting up or in his rich kindness is to lead to repentance, not to excuse. I love that, that there's this richness of kindness. Hopefully we're starting to see that we need God not to just be kind, but be rich in kindness, rich in his patience toward us, not just towards those sinners over there, rich in his forbearance, that he needs to be richly putting up with me. And so we can thank him for that. But the purpose in that is to lead us further into repentance. Whatever wrath is revealed at this moment or is not revealed to us at this moment is part of God putting up with us that should make us be thankful. And yet, it is so easy to miss, isn't it? There's not much thanking God for the wrath that we don't think we deserve or that's unseen. And so again, if if we're not thanking God, Aren't we fitting into the very core of the argument of chapter 1? Verse 18, that what did they do? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They wouldn't thank God as his due. Wouldn't glorify God as his due. And so if we're not thinking of, of thanking God for his kindness, rich kindness, rich forbearance, rich patience toward us right now when we're not facing directly his burning wrath and fury, then maybe we do fall into chapter 1, verse 18, even more squarely. A right reading of chapter 1, verse 18, and all the rest of chapter 1, a right reading of that wrath, a right reading of the kindness that he displays in the midst of our unrighteousness and forbearance and patience ought to lead us to repentance for the ways that we've worked against the holiness and greatness of God. And so we have to ask again this reflective question, like are we presuming on the richness, kindness, and forbearance and patience of God? I mean, church, ask, what did verses 1, chapter 1, 18 through 32, what did that do for you? I confess that as I look back, I can tell that my heart attitude was, you you remember Jesus told this parable of of a Pharisee and a tax collector praying the temple, and and the Pharisee is, I'm thankful that I'm not like other men, and then the, the, the tax collector is beating his chest saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. I confess that as I read chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, as I reflect back on, I think I had more of the heart of a Pharisee there than the tax collector. In other words, I was more presumptuous sumptuous on the kindness and forbearance and patience of God towards me and, and way more ready to send off that wrath that should fall on other people. Did, did chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, did that help you identify your own sin and put you squarely under the judgment of God that you deserve and make you thank God for the kindness and patience and forbearance that he's showing you even at this moment? Too often, my heart is on the wrong side of that parable where I can say, I'm thank, thank you, God. I'm not like chapter one, not like that man. And that parable and these verses here in chapter two and God's kindness, you know what all those are meant to lead us to? Repentance. A, a time of judgment is coming, but God has given space to sinners to repent. His kindness, his putting up with us, his patience is meant to lead us to repent. It should rid us of presumption before God. And that space will not last. Listen to what he says in verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
Uh, verse 5, there's the answer to verse 3's question. Do, do you suppose that you're going to escape the judgment of God? Verse 5 says, nope. That it goes even further. Not only does it say a time of judgment is coming for those who are the judges of chapter 2, verse 1. But that judgment, we need to make note of this. It is being stored up. Don't miss stored. You're storing up judgment. It's cumulative. It's righteous. It's inescapable. There's one judge in the end. And in the end, his judgment is all that matters. So that should lead us to not be presumptuous, to not presume on his kindness and forbearance and patience. It should lead us to repentance. It should promote in us, like that we would say before God, I'm, I'm a guilty, weak, and helpless worm. Only thing I can do is just fall in your kind arms. It should promote in us that kind of humility. And those who, verse 5, have these hard and penitent hearts, those who don't repent are storing up wrath for themselves because God's judgment is inescapable. Paul wants his audience to know if you thought you were written out, you had the immunity necklace on, you thought you were out of chapter 1, you're in chapter 2, it's inescapable. And it's also that judgment is impartial. Look in verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. Each person will be judged by the judge according to his works. And the nature of those he gives us in 7 through 10. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Since God renders to each person according to his works, the, the description that Paul describes is, is the pathways, right? You, you have the person who does good and the person who does evil. And, and there's some parallels here, right? You, got, you have verse 7 and through 10 are, are kind of working together. That's the good. And verses 8 and 9 work together. They're speaking of, of following and doing evil works. Verses 8 and 9, they, they tie back to verse chapter 1, verse 18, right? Here, here's what they're doing in chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. They're, they're not obeying the truth. Remember in chapter 1, they've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They're suppressing the truth, chapter 1. So in both, there's this mishandling of truth, this practice of unrighteousness that draws the just and impartial wrath and judgment of God. To be self-seeking, again, puts you squarely in chapter 1, is to not honor or give thanks to God. It's to serve and worship the creature rather than the creator. And so they don't obey the truth, the, the knowledge of God that they know that they've suppressed, and, and man, again, do we notice that the truth that we know really matters? And he says they don't obey the truth, and so they have this wrath and fury from God directed at them. Jew first, but also the Greek. In other words, he's saying to them, if you, again, you Jews who might have written yourself out of chapter 1, who thought that's a Gentile problem, that sounds like judgment that God's going to pour out on the Gentiles, he's saying that's you right here, that there's wrath and fury for you. None does, who does evil is going to escape God's impartial judgment. No matter what status you think you have, you're going to face God's wrath and fury. There's no protected status. There's no immunity necklace for you. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The one who does evil is going to face God's judgment. But he also describes the opposite. In verse 7, there are those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, and he will give eternal life, which I think he helps further Defined in verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. For again, God shows no partiality. All right, so the point of verses 6 through 11 is to show God's judgment is impartial, right? So verse 5, you have these hard and impenitent hearts, and because you do, verse 6, he's rendering to each one according to his judgment, and because He's going he's gonna to render each one according to his judgment because of verse 6. He shows no impartiality. He is impartial. So the ground of 6 through 11, the basis of the judgment that he gives in verses 6 through 11 is, ver is verse 11. For God shows no partiality. That all are judged by their works is not a new idea. It's not a new idea for the Jews. It's not a new idea in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, uh, Jesus says that his angels are going to come and he's going to repay each one according to what he has done. You might think of this in 
in Matthew chapter 25, the sheep and the goat passage, or, or in Paul, it's not a new idea in Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, he says he's going to judge each one according to the deeds done in the body. But man, verse 7 is still a little puzzling, isn't it? Again, he says, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So it, it sounds as if maybe this is meritorious, like you, you are doing these good things and you've now merited, gained, earned eternal life. And so how do we explain this? All right, there's a, a few different possibilities. The first is to say that what Paul is saying in verse 7 and 10, those going together, is that he is giving the condition for eternal life apart from Jesus. So eternal life, if for one apart from Jesus, is granted if one does good works, and who he's going to say this in chapter 2, verse 13, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So it's the, the one who does good works and who does the law is the one that is granted eternal life. Now this is theoretical or perhaps even hypothetical situation that Paul sets up here. Because the argument of chapter 1, verse 18, all the way down through chapter 3, verse 20, is to say of that person that no one does that. No one fits into that category. I think if you were to take it that way, to say of verse 7 that this is the condition and that no one fits in this condition, then you fit the point of the section, that all are deserving of judgment. They fall under the just judgment, the impartial judgment of God. And I think that thinking about that option, then it's hard to conclude that that isn't the right option as we read through it. That, that Paul is showing all of people, all of humanity, their need for righteousness, their need for the gospel. He's preparing for what he's going to unfold later in chapter 3. All right, so that's one option. There's a second option. Is to say that verse 7 and 10, going together, describe the Christian. That through their union with Christ, by faith in Christ, by the power of Christ's spirit in them, they, they do verse 7. They, they, by patience and well-doing, they seek for glory and honor and immortality. That's what they live their life. So good works then in that case would be the fruit of their faith. Now, Paul certainly teaches and affirms a, a living faith, a faith that is obedient to God in life, a faith that works itself out in this life, a, a faith that, that loves and serves others, a, a faith that, that is full of actual life, fruit of the Holy Spirit, that, that loves God and loves others, which is the fulfillment of the law. So Paul certainly teaches and affirms that. And, and further, eternal life couldn't be granted to those of verse 5, right? They're facing judgment. And who are verse 5? The hard and impenitent heart. And so verse 7 and 10 could be implying and saying that the, the one of verse 7 is one who has repented, who's been given new life by God. And so repentance, rightly understood, acknowledges that that eternal life could never have been earned because in the nature of repentance, you're saying, I've done something wrong and I'm turning from that into a different direction. And so repentance, rightly understood, acknowledges eternal life is not earned, but is the fruit of turning to God. God has granted eternal life because he has given me new life and a repentant heart. And so all those who turn to God, who truly repent, live a life of faith that's full of verse 7. Right? So that's another option. I actually think that option is probably where I'd land. But it's hard because at this point, it's, it's reading ahead a little bit. Paul hasn't maybe fully gotten there, and we're reading just a section at a time, so it's hard to hit that. But still, this gives room, if you land there, it still gives room for the gospel that he's going to explain. So no matter what option you choose, what we have here is the point of verse 6 through 11 is, verse 6, he's going to render each one according to his works. It's impartial because, verse 11, God shows no partiality. There are only two options, two ways to go. There's the, the path that leads to wrath and fury, and the path that leads to eternal life. And those couldn't be more consequential for our lives. There is only eternal life, which is defined in verse 10 as glory and honor and peace. Or there's wrath and fury, which he says, verse 8 and 9, is tribulation and distress. And he says, one of these is for each person. Each person is going to face one or the other based upon the impartial judgment of God, no matter their status, judge or not, Jew or not, they will face the impartial judgment of God, and those are the two options before God. So maybe at this point the argument goes, well, what about the Jews? I mean, they have the law. Didn't that make them a little bit better off? Didn't that, didn't that offer them 
before this impartial judgment of God? I mean, they knew he was impartial all the way back in the Old Testament. Didn't that offer to them some sort of refuge, some sort of advantage in facing his judgment and facing what could be potential salvation? And I think that it's that argument that Paul picks up. He says, since God is impartial and renders each according to his works, then even the possession of the law itself as a Jew, he says, is going to argue in verses 12 through 16, is no advantage and no refuge. And so verse 12 For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. The the Gentiles are those without the law. They, They are those without the Mosaic law. And he says all those who sin without the Mosaic law perish, which is a clear, clear pronouncement of eternal judgment. Sin without the law, you're going to perish without the law. You're going to face eternal judgment without the law. And we know, verse 11, God is impartial in this judgment. So he's also going to include, it's not just those who sin without the law that are judged. You have the law. Verse 12, all who have sinned under the law, they will be judged too. This judgment is completely impartial. Jews who have it will face that judgment as well. And so those who sin under the law will be judged by that law. For he says, verse 13, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. You could argue, I've heard the law and I'm part of the covenant people of God, so certainly there's some sort of advantage in that, right? Doesn't that offer me some some hope uh, over a Gentile in salvation, in, in judgment that God is speaking of? And he's saying here, hearing of the law, being whatever status in hearing the law is No advantage in judgment. Why? Because God, verse 6, is going to render each one according to his work. And he's, verse 11, this God who shows no partiality, he's going to give impartial judgment to each person. The standard of God's inescapable and impartial judgment is the doing of the law, not the hearing of the law. Jews had heard the law. They they recited the law. They might have found some refuge in that. They, They might have thought, again, like we're part of the covenant people of God, sons of Abraham. Certainly that was the uh, uh, tenor of Jesus' day that he had to battle against. Certainly that was the, Paul had to face that as well. He preached in synagogues and he would have known this kind of argument as too. And he's saying, God's judgment is impartial for you too. That in the end, if you just think I'm a hearer of the law, I'm part of the covenant people of God, that you are offered no refuge from the judgment of God. Because he's rendering to each one, each to his, according to his works. No, he says. There's no advantage, refuge found in the hearing of the law. It's the doers who are justified. All right, so here we land in some more trouble, don't we? Not trouble, difficulty. We're trying to work out together. Again, what he's saying when he's saying doers of the law are justified before God could be theoretical. In other words, that's the condition. You want to be justified before God? Here's the condition. Be perfect. Right? Jesus says that in, Sermon on the Mount, you want to be perfect. Your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the, the theoretical condition for being justified. It could be hypothetical so that Paul is setting us up. And he's saying, hey, you want to be justified for God? You got to be a doer of the law. Guess what? Chapter 3, verse 20, no one is justified by works of the law. All right, so it's a hypothetical. I'm building you up and just going to like, nope, you can't do that. So here, I'm going to give you something else in chapter 3, verse 21 through 28, but we're not going there yet. All right, so that's possible that he's doing just that. That he is saying, here's a theoretical condition, or this is a hypothetical one. Or what Paul could be doing in these verses is speaking again of a Christian. Right? Of someone who's been transformed by the work of God, and now, what is this person doing? He's starting to do the works of the law. Alright, so the point is that Jews who have the law have no advantage in the hearing of law, being covenant people of God. They have no advantage in salvation and judgment, because God is impartial. And so here's Paul going to add on in verses 14 through 16, and it gets a little bit more dicey there. All right, verse 16, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Again, Paul could be speaking of Gentiles who are actual Christians here. That's another option, a viable option, that Paul is saying that those, there are Gentiles who know the law in their hearts, that, that, and it is uh, uh, this conclusion that, that they are now living this out, right? That, so 
Paul, speaking of, if he were speaking of Gentiles who know the law in their hearts, maybe we could think about it as natural law. That's how some take it. The, the natural law and the conscience, which, by the way, I think are both true. You're not going to find a culture or place that doesn't have some sense of right and wrong. There are things that are accepted or things that are not. We do have a conscience within us. Both of those things are true. Paul could be speaking of the Gentiles like that, who know the law in that way. Like, naturally, we know some sense of right and wrong. Chapter 1, we know that there's a God and we're accountable to him, and we have a conscience. So Paul could be speaking of those Gentiles. And because they know these things and have a conscience bearing witness to it and do it, they show that they're not, you know, do some of it. They show that they're not actually doers of it either because if they're obeying some of it, they know that they're not obeying all of it. They have a conscience, right? This would fit into the the view, again, that this is theoretical, that Paul is saying, hey, even Gentiles, if if they were to do the law, even they would be judged before God because we're all judged before God. It's not just a knowing of the law in some way that that justifies anybody. It's an actual doing, full keeping of the law, but we know we can't keep the law because we don't have the power to keep the law that I'm going to talk about in chapter 3. That could be part of it, the hypothetical option. So there's another option. Again, if we see verses 6 through 11 as a Christian, as I think I'm convinced of, there's another option here that Paul is considering in verses 14 through 16, a Gentile who doesn't just have natural law, who doesn't just have a conscience and is an unbeliever, but, but a Gentile who is an actual believer, right? So, so verse 14 seems to follow most closely with the end of verse 13. Doers of the law will be justified. And, and the point that Paul is making in these verses, 12 through 16, is that Jews have no advantage in salvation and judgment based upon their hearing of the law. And, and Paul could be furthering that point by saying, hey, guess what? Even Gentiles can be doers of the law. They're not hearers of the law. That didn't gain you an advantage because look at these guys. They didn't even have the hearing of the law like you did, and they can be doers of the law. Well, how can they do that? By having the law written on their hearts. That, that is found in the new covenant promises that we find for Christians who take part in the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. That the new covenant promise that God is going to write the law on your heart I think that that, if if you're reading this, if it's more directed at the Jew in chapter 2, which I think that it is, that the more natural reading of of verses 14 through 16, and you're thinking about the law and the Gentile written on the heart, I think the more natural reading is to not read into that, that the Jew has a natural law. I think the more natural reading is to think, wait a second, I've heard about the law written on somebody's heart. That was given in Jeremiah chapter 31. And so for a chapter that's a little bit more targeted towards Jews, it seems that this section might be more quickly uh, given reference to Jeremiah 31 than to the natural law, which seems to come a little bit out of left field. And if the law is written on the heart, then it's possible for these believing now Gentiles to have these thoughts that excuse them before the judgment of God. That now your conscience can actually bear witness to something different before God. The, the conscience is normally there to bear guilty witness before God. Here along, now we have this new heart, and the, the conscience can come along and even excuse before God. Because why? Because God has changed our hearts, and now we have a, a different disposition toward Him. Amen. So what of the accusing thoughts, then, of verse 15 and 16? Well, we know that Christians can experience that as well. In 1 John chapter 3... Verse 20, he says, sometimes even our hearts condemn us. Thankfully, God is greater than our hearts. So that even if your conscience accuses you, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a Christian and that you will face the wrath and fury of God. And so I think in this reading, if Paul were to be speaking of, in verse 14 through 16, of a believing Gentile, Paul would be concluding, you have Jews, no advantage in having the law and hearing the law as a Jew. It's not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law who are justified. And even Gentiles who have that law written by God on their hearts can do the law. So you have no advantage over them. This doing of the law isn't the basis of their justification. Remember, you have to have a new heart. They failed to keep it as they should, but now they've been given that by God. And so the basis of their justification isn't their doing, but their doing is speaking to their justification. So again, no, no matter which option we choose, and I agree, and one of my favorite commentators said of this, this is one of the more challenging passages in all of Romans. And if you've read Romans, you're like, there's a lot of those. Here's one of them. And, and again, he says, this is one of the more challenging ones. No matter where you fall, the climactic reality is given to us clearly in verse 16. That on that day, 
when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What kind of judgment is going to be revealed on that day? It's an inescapable judgment. It's an impartial judgment. And, And here he goes even further to say, again, the whole point of this passage is to implicate all in the judgment of God. You thought you were written out of it. You're not written out of it. And, and now he's saying, not only is it inescapable, it's impartial. He's going to judge based not just on some things that we can see on the outside. Even he knows that he has knowledge of each person individually, even all the way down to their secrets. That way, no one standing before God will have an excuse. None is going to be able to stand before God and say, that's unfair, God. You didn't know this other detail. He's going to be like, actually, I knew that other detail. And it's just as condemning for you. No one's going to be able to say, unfair, I'm part of the covenant people of God. He's going to say, I'm going to render impartially according to your works. No one's going to say, but you, you don't understand. See, I know the secrets all of your hearts. You have no excuse, O oh man. What everyone knows, whether Jew or Gentile, is that if our secrets were laid out in front of everybody, laid out in front of God, the reality would be really scary. We... We know, like our, our conscience bears witness that we don't even live up to our own standards. And we have all these secrets that if we just, like, let's look in the, the closet to see what skeletons are there. We all have them, and God's going to be able to bring those out on Judgment Day because he's going to render to each one according to his works, and he's going to render impartial judgment. What we have here at the end of chapter 2, verse 16, is a really scary reality for all men. And I think that's why it's so good that Paul just kind of slipped in here He says, on that day when, according to my gospel. And that word, it needs to kind of sweep like like fresh air. I don't know if you've sensed this as you've read chapter 1, 18 through. I mean, I was, we were riding high, 16 and 17 of chapter 1, weren't we? And then we went 18, and Paul's just dragging us way down, and we deserve it. That's where we really are. But he has this word that he's floated out there a few times, gospel. What's gospel? It's good news. What's gospel? He he said, right? Chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of it. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul is making abundantly clear that the gospel includes a real salvation. We kind of get away from that, don't we? We think the gospel is about eternal life and us getting something from God. And Paul is saying, yeah, that's true. Also, you need to be saved from something, and you need to make sure you know what that something is. That is the wrath and fury of God that's directed at you, who are included in all men of chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so the gospel comes as good news, and it actually is good news because we're being rescued from something that we deserve. We're saved from something, and we're saved from God's inescapable and impartial judgment. It is directed at everyone who can fit within any category of chapter 1 and chapter 2, and it deserves to fall on all. And so in Romans 1 and chapter 2, Paul is building out what we're being saved from. He's preparing us for the righteousness that he talked about just briefly in verse 17 that he's going to reveal to us so clearly in chapters, end of chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and how that works out in chapter 6 and 7 and on and on. He's preparing us for a fuller explanation. He brings everybody to this place that no matter their background, their status, no matter what they heard or haven't heard, they may feel that they have immunity. They may not feel like they have immunity. That God's judgment is inescapable and impartial. No one escapes. All will be judged by God who knows every single secret. But Paul's gospel is still hanging out there, isn't it? The gospel that chapter 1, verse 3, it's, it's the gospel concerning his son, who's descended from David according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In this gospel, salvation is offered through the son. So that all who are going to face the inescapable judgment of God, the impartial judgment of God. We don't escape that judgment. He doesn't judge impartially upon us. But those who trust in that son pass through judgment because their judgment didn't fall on them. It already has fallen. It fell on Christ Jesus. And the one who judges secrets of men is the one who could say, if we trust in him, died for my secret sins. Paul brings us to the end of verse 16 in chapter 2. And he's saying, don't don't you see your need? Run to your salvation. Let's pray together.
God, your word is heavy today. Because your glory is heavy and your holiness has great weight. And so does our sin. And we, when we compare the two, when we start talking about secret thoughts being laid bare on Judgment Day, we compare our sin with your holiness and your goodness. It is a terrifying thing. And we can be pretty eager to erase that part away from you, that truth of who you are the righteous judge of the universe. And fast forward to Romans 3 and talk about other things. But we need to feel the heaviness of our sin because we need to remember what we have been saved from. We need to remember what we deserve from you because of our sin. All of us. And we praise you that you have given yourself for us. We want this to make us a thankful people. We want this to make us a compassionate people who are not hateful and condescending and judgmental and we need to be able to speak truly about sin and invite people into the gospel into the good news but we have to explain the bad news too but we want to do that with love and compassion and that starts with recognizing our own sin protect us from being Christians who say thank God I'm not like those people Jesus, we love you, and we are so thankful that you love us. Despite the depth of our sin, you came into this world and laid down your life because you want us to be your kids. And so I pray that we would rejoice in that and that we would be gospel-believing and gospel-speaking people. We praise you today, Jesus, for what you have done for us. Thank you for your forgiveness and your mercy. Let us give grace to others and bring them into your family. In your name we pray, amen.